You're going to find Judges chapter 14 on page 248. So with your Bible open and something to write on and something to write with, you're going to be in good shape today. It was several, several years ago. I was home in Oklahoma, winter time, a, a fresh coat of sleet had paved the roads and, and I had a drive to make. And so as I was pulling out of the neighborhood, there's this one sharp turn and I thought it'd be fun to drift this turn a bit. So I hit the turn, I tapped the gas, the back end of the car fishtailed a lot more than I anticipated and I just started to spin and I stopped spinning when I smashed into the curb. So I got out to assess the damage and sure enough, this one wheel was just torn to shreds. Uh, and then I, when I got back in the car to drive, I realized the damage was a lot more severe than what I had even seen. You see, normally, when I would point my steering wheel straight, my car would go straight. But now in this moment, in order to go straight, I had to cock the wheel to the side like this. I had knocked my car severely out of alignment. And this is a big deal. Alignment in your car means that all four of your tires are going to go in the right direction, the same direction. But if you've got two that go this way and two that go that way, you've got a problem on your hands. Alignment is super important when it comes to cars. Alignment is important when it comes to bones and joints. Alignment's important when it comes to your spiritual life as well. Our spiritual life is in alignment when the life we live follows after the Lord's will. That's spiritual alignment. I'm going to live, speak, think, and act in ways that are consistent with the will of God for me. A spiritual life that's out of alignment does just the opposite. It may carry the name of Christ, yet it does not walk in the way of Christ. There's a lack of alignment here and that's a problem. When our lives are lived in alignment with the Lord's will, what we find is joy and blessing and abundant life. But when our spiritual lives are lived out of alignment with the will of God, we find frustration. We find difficulty. We find all kinds of problems when we live our lives counter to the will of God. And so this morning, Samson is going to be our teacher on the issue of alignment with the will of God. Now, we started our look into Samson's life last week, chapter 13 of Judges. Uh, we called it Christmas in July, right? It's a nativity scene. It's this big, beautiful story of uh, Samson's birth. And chapter 13 is full of hope and promise. And today we step into chapter 14 and into Samson's life proper, and we get a different view. Now, one thing that might help you in our study of Samson's life for the next couple of weeks is to understand on whole my take, my perspective on Samson. There are two prominent schools of thought when it comes to evaluating Samson's life. And so you get to choose which one of these schools you, you want to hang out in. But one school of thought views Samson largely as negative. I would call this the traditional view. Uh, the vast amount of scholarship looks at Samson's life as a life lived out of the will of God, a life that is immature, disobedient, disrespectful, and sinful. But ultimately, God accomplishes his purposes in spite of Samson's sin. That's one way to view it. Another way to view Samson's life is very different. This, this view sees Samson's, Samson's life as something positive. 
it, it makes very careful arguments about what we would consider to be mistakes in Samson's life. And through meticulously studying Scripture, uh, this other perspective holds Samson as someone to be exemplified and, and to follow in a positive sense. Now, there's a, a, my take, there's not one that's right and one that's clearly wrong. Both of these views come from sticking your nose in the Word of God and spending time in Scripture. And you can have a different view on this, and we'll all still be in heaven together one day, and it's going to be all right. Now, for me, I take the traditional view. I view Samson's life as largely negative, sinful, a big problem. I think Samson is a hot mess. And I think we learn our lessons from Samson's life by viewing his mistakes. He's a negative teacher of positive principles for us uh, as we spend time with him. And so you might say, push back a bit and say, but Cody, Samson's name is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11. The, the hall of faith, these heroes of faith, the, his name is mentioned among them. You may not want to take so stern of a view on Samson's life. And, and you're exactly right. Samson's name shows up in Hebrews chapter 11 uh, alongside people like Gideon and Jephthah, men that we've spent time with in God's Word who have some positive attributes about them but also really struggle. Their lives are not so binary. It's not just good or bad, black or white. These guys were troubled figures. One old preacher described Samson's life this way. He said, Samson was a man of faith, but he was not a faithful man. I think that's a fair assessment. Uh, certainly a man of faith, a man who is blessed by the Lord and empowered by the Lord, but still a man who is troubled by his own appetites and his own sins. So I see Samson's life as out of alignment with God's will. And today in Judges chapter 14, Samson's going to teach us about alignment through his negative example. So my purpose in preaching Judges chapter 14 today is to encourage you to live your life in line with God's will. God is at work among us. God is at work around you. He has a mission to accomplish a purpose in what he is doing in your life and in the life of our church. And if we're going to be on board with that mission, if we're going to be the kind of people who walk in the power of Christ and the power of God the Holy Spirit for the sake of the salvation of men and women and boys and girls, then you and I need to be the kind of believers whose lives are in perfect alignment with the will of God. And this does not need to be some fuzzy notion, some vague idea. Today I want to show you in Judges chapter 14, Four areas of our lives that need to be in alignment with the will of God. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Judges chapter 14. Here's our setting. Samson has been born. It's a miraculous pregnancy. Samson's born. Things look promising. We pick up chapter 14, verse 1. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? 
But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Sometime later, when he went back to marry her, he turned aside to look at the lion's carcass. In it was a swarm of bees and some honey, which he scooped out with his hands and ate as he went along. When he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they too ate it, but he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Now his father went down to see the woman, and Samson made a feast there as was customary for bridegrooms. When he appeared, he was given 30 companions. Let me tell you a riddle, Samson said to them. If you can give me the answer within seven days of the feast... I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. But if you can't tell me the answer, you must give me 30 linen garments and 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it. He replied, Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give an answer. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? Then Samson's wife threw herself on him, sobbing, You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. I haven't even explained it to my father or mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seven days of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. Before sunset on the seventh day, the men of the town said to him, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? Samson said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. And Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. All right. In Samson's life, I see a life that is out of alignment with the will of God And I want us to learn from these different episodes in this scene what alignment looks like. And so if you're taking notes, I want to show you four places in our lives where we need to have alignment with God's will. The first is this. Believers need alignment in our desires. If we're going to walk in the will of the Father, you and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, need to have alignment in our desires. So we ended chapter 13 with such promise. We step into chapter 14, and it illustrates the old phrase, it's a short trip from the penthouse to the outhouse. 
Samson is on the scene and things become a mess very quickly. Look again back at verses 1 and 2. Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah is a Philistine town or village. And he saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. What's the problem with this? What's the problem with Samson seeing someone finding her attractive, and wanting to marry her. Well, there's several problems. First of all, Samson's new crush is a Philistine. Samson is an Israelite. And God's people have been told explicitly and repeatedly not to marry outside the faith. Why is that? Because when you take their wives, you will also take their gods. God's concern certainly is not an ethnic concern. God's concern is a religious concern. Do not marry outside the nation of Israel because you will become an idolater like the people you marry. So Samson does not have God's permission to pursue a Philistine wife no matter how attractive he finds her. God's word on this matter trumps Samson's desires. And even Samson's parents know this. In verse 3, they counter, they push back. Look at what they say. Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? That phrase or that line, uncircumcised, very important. It's a religious issue. So can't you find a wife from within the family of Israel? And uh, Samson refuses. That's a problem. Another problem with choosing a Philistine wife is in this episode, Samson blatantly disrespects his parents. In Samson's culture, sons did not tell their fathers what to do, especially as it related to marriage. The normal way of things was arranged marriages under the father's direction. Samson sees the woman, wants the woman, commands his parents to fetch the woman now our modern mindset might say good for samson for bucking tradition who wants an arranged marriage the heart has to lead in these matters but listen i have four daughters and your sons look they are cute but they are dumb (laughs) and it is my intention to pick the spouses for my daughters. I'm on board with arranged marriages, 100%. I, I'll have to clear this with them and their mother, but I, I don't like my chances. I can see the merit of it, though. But look, Samson's desire for this woman leads him to violate God's word and to disrespect his parents. He damages relationships in every direction for the sake of someone he sees and he wants. And in this, Samson exhibits a moral code that would be right at home in 21st century America. In our culture, your moral compass is found within your personal desires. Our culture preaches the inherent goodness of all people. And so the greatest good is to be true to yourself. When we are all basically good, the most inspirational and heroic thing you can do is be your inner you in whatever form that takes. But Scripture 
describes humanity in such a very different way. We are not all basically good. Because of our sinful DNA, we are foundationally flawed and broken by sin. We don't start out as winners. We start out as, by nature, objects of God's wrath because of our sin. We are fundamentally rebels against a holy God. And so if we were true to ourselves then we would celebrate and accentuate that brokenness and sinfulness that separates us from God. But instead, God works in his people not to affirm our broken desires, but to heal them, redeem them, bring them into alignment with his will. We find ourselves in very dangerous places when what we see grips our hearts. The life that's lived in pursuit of appetites and lusts and sinful desires is the life that is on the brink of destruction or in the midst of it. Samson should walk by faith, not by sight, but instead he walks by sight, not by faith. I have seen a woman in Timna get her for me. From this, you and I find the way you and I should walk, by faith, not by sight, trusting the word of God. Walking by sight sees the thing, wants the thing, takes the thing. Walking by faith sees the word, submits to the word, acts on the word. So if you were to examine your life this morning in terms of your desires, the things you want, the things you see, the things you pursue, appetites, things like that. And if you evaluate your life as out of alignment with the will of God, You are pursuing things that are not in line with God's will for you. How do you change that? What do you do to bring that that is out of alignment back into alignment? Here's what you do. Remember the words you just sang before we jumped into Judges 14. You will turn your eyes upon Jesus. And when you look to Jesus, what you will find is the one whose life is lived in perfect alignment with the will of the Father, the one whose desires were for the Father's will to be done and His name to be exalted. On the night before His death, Jesus prays, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. And that's who we want to follow. We bear the name of Christ. We follow Christ as we bring our desires in alignment with him. Just two weeks ago, we heard Jesus say from Matthew chapter 5 that his followers are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not our wants, not our appetites, not our lusts, but righteousness. And so if you find your life disjointed, we look to Jesus and we find in his word, in his example, the life that you and I are to live, the power, the hope, the grace to walk in alignment. Now, you might push back a little bit and say, Cody, you're skipping verse 4. Don't skip verse 4. It's very important, and you're right. I'm glad you mentioned it. We might read verse 4 and feel like this complicates things a bit. Look at what it says. It's a little parenthetical statement. It says, Samson's parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. So we might read this verse and say, well, then it's obvious that God did not have a problem with Samson taking a Philistine wife since this was from the Lord. But we must be very careful here. 
Are we saying that God wants Samson to violate God's word? Absolutely not. God does not want that. He does not sanction sin for any purpose whatsoever. When the text tells us that this was from the Lord, it's telling us that God is working to accomplish his primary purpose even through Samson's ungodly choices. So what's from the Lord? Well, the the what from the Lord is the judgment on the Philistines, the liberation of Israel from their enemy oppressor for 40 years. And if God's deliverer is not going to walk in God's way, God is still going to deliver. He will use those sinful choices to accomplish his good and right purposes. One of my favorite preachers is a man named Warren Wearsby, and he explained the situation with Samson this way. He said, when God isn't permitted to rule in our lives, he overrules and works out his will in spite of our decisions. Of course, we're the losers for rebelling against him, but God will accomplish his purposes either with us or in spite of us. Verse 4 tells us God is accomplishing his purposes in spite of Samson's sin. You and I, if we're going to walk in the will of the Lord, we do so by bringing our desires under his lordship, wanting what God wants. If you and I are going to have alignment with the Lord, it will be in our desires. Second, it's alignment in our holiness. Verses 5 through 9 describe for us alignment in our holiness. So the story continues. There's a lot of back and forth, a lot of traveling in chapter 14 between Samson's hometown and Timnah. Someone's always coming or going somewhere. So verse 5, Samson's on his way down to Timnah. And as they come to these vineyards in Timnah, a lion jumps out roaring at him. Verse 6, the spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. I'm not sure how easy it is to tear apart a young goat. Probably not the metaphor I would have been inspired to choose but still i would imagine a young goat is easier to tear apart than a lion anyways uh, he tears apart the lion but didn't tell his father and mother what he had done and it was sometime later he's going back again to timna all this traveling happening and the roadkill is still right there and now he sees that there's bees that have taken up residence in the lion's carcass and so he scoops out some honey eats the honey then he shares it with his parents but he doesn't tell his parents where he got the honey from now i think this episode with the lion and the honey makes a lot more sense if we keep in mind something we talked about last week that's samson's nazarite vow when the angel of the lord comes to samson's mother and tells her that though she has been barren she will have a son the strict instructions repeated three different times in chapter 13 is that this boy will be a Nazarite from his birth. What's that mean? In case you were not with us last week, a Nazarite vow is described in the book of Numbers chapter 6. And in Numbers chapter 6, a, a Nazarite vow is a temporary commitment on a person's part to do some work for the Lord. And while you are under that temporary commitment, There's some rules you follow in order to remain ceremonially clean. And so you don't cut your hair, and you don't go 
by any vineyard-related product. No wine, no grapes, no nothing. It's not just anti-alcohol. It is anti-vine, period. You stay away from haircuts. You stay away from vineyard products. And you stay away from dead bodies. Doing this keeps you ceremonially pure while you are undertaking this special task for the Lord. And when your task is done, your vow is completed and you can step out of the Nazarite vow. What's unique for Samson is that his vow is not some temporary arrangement. This is a lifelong commitment for Samson, according to the Lord. He will be a Nazarite from his birth. Start to finish, his life is to be lived under these rules, this, this pursuit of ceremonial purity. No haircut, no vineyard, no dead bodies, none of that. It might also be worth mentioning that there is a difference between the words Nazarite and Nazarene. Sometimes we often get these words mixed up just to make sure we're clear on this. Jesus was not a Nazarite because he did not take a Nazarite vow. He was a Nazarene because he came from a town called Nazareth. Samson is a Nazarite because he took the vow, not a Nazarene because he's not from a town called Nazareth, right? So a little clarification that might help as well in future discussions. So Samson's vow requires no cut in hair, no vineyard, no dead bodies. And two of those three requirements are violated in this very scene. He's by the vineyards of Timnah. That proximity is out of bounds for someone with his vow. He kills the lion, and then later he comes back and he makes contact with the lion's carcass. This is out of bounds for someone under a Nazarite vow. This story shows how out of alignment Samson is with the word of the Lord. And to make matters worse, it's not just that he defiles himself. But when he returns and finds the beehive and takes the honey and then shares it with his parents, he makes them ceremonially unclean as well. But he doesn't tell them that. He just does the thing, keeps it secret. It's a twisted game. The way this story is told, it ought to remind us of another story involving forbidden food. Samson saw the honey, took the honey, ate the honey, gave the honey. In Genesis chapter 3, Eve saw the fruit, took the fruit, ate the fruit, gave the fruit. So Samson has chosen the way of sin. I think the writer of our story wants to make sure we understand that. But what are we supposed to do with the line in verse 6? It says, The Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Does the fact that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power tell us that God approves of what's happening here? I don't believe so. First, I think the Spirit of the Lord is on Samson in this instance to keep Samson alive. He's the chosen leader for God's people. God has a plan and a purpose for Samson's life. And so the Lord is going to empower Samson to keep him alive so that he can continue to lead Israel against the Philistines. But second, I think also this is a moment of grace to Samson. I think this is a reminder of what he is supposed to be about. Here he is at the vineyards. And this lion attacks him. The spirit of the Lord is on Samson not to to tear apart wildlife, but to wage war. 
Samson is distracted by all these other pursuits. This lion is a gracious reminder to an immature and unholy Samson that the Spirit of the Lord is on him for a purpose greater than that which he is pursuing. Samson's purity and his holiness is an absolute wreck in this instance. He makes compromises. He makes unholy choices in secret. He puts himself in the path of sin. He removes himself from the Word of God. He doesn't align himself with God's holiness. It's a sad thing when people who bear God's name do not walk in the holiness of the Lord. Now, to be sure, God does not expect sinless perfection from you. Absolutely not. Though you are saved, still you're a sinner. A sinner forgiven, redeemed, held in the hands of God by His grace, saved by grace, secured by grace all the way through. He doesn't expect sinless perfection. But followers of Jesus are to strive for holiness. Not use grace as an occasion or an excuse for sin, but to battle sin at every turn. So when you examine your life, is your holiness in alignment with the will of the Father? Are you paying attention to your purity? Are you protecting your eyes, your mind? Are you bringing yourself under the freedom of the Word of God, freedom from sin and destruction? If not, how do we bring that which is disjointed into alignment? Here's how. You set your eyes on Jesus, who in John chapter 17 prays specifically for your sanctification, prays that the Father would make you holy. And we set our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus who has prayed for our holiness, Jesus who has a vested interest in our sanctification. And there we find the grace to clean us up and forgive us from our sin. There we find strength. There we find direction when we set our eyes on Jesus. Your life is in alignment with God when your desires fall in line with His will, when your holiness falls in line with His will. Third, we need alignment in our attitude. We need alignment in our attitude, verses 10 through 18. So, starting in verse 10, it is wedding week for Samson. He shows up in Timnah without any groomsmen, and so they give him 30 companions. For some reason, it doesn't. this is cynical reader Cody. It doesn't surprise me that Samson has no friends at his wedding for some reason. So they give him 30 local men as his wedding party, and he decides to play a game with them, an impossible game they cannot win. And he tells them a riddle, and if they guess it right, he'll give them 30 sets of clothes. If they don't get it right, they'll give him 30 sets of clothes. And so the riddle comes from his experience with the lion and the honey. It's one thing to willingly sin against God and break those vows. It's another thing to make a game of it. So the groomsmen are willing to hang around for the game and they're willing to hang around for the free food and the free drink. But they're not willing to lose this game. So after a few days of failure, they grow furious and they threaten Samson's wife-to-be. We will burn you and your father if you do not get the answer for us. She comes to Samson and she presses him. 
And Samson, for all of his strength, he can handle lions, he can handle bad guys, he cannot handle a woman upset. And so he tells her the answer to the riddle, and then in verse 18, the bros answer the riddle, and look at how Samson replies. Verse 18, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. I know that idioms and figures of speech don't translate well from culture to culture and century to century. I think this one is vulgar and crude in every epic of human time. I think it means every vulgar thing you would think it means. So Samson's arrogance drips off the page of his story. He's arrogant towards God as he makes a joke of his broken vows. He's arrogant towards the Philistine men with his impossible riddle. He's arrogant towards his fiancée when he speaks of her in such vulgar ways. It is humility, not pride, that is to mark the attitudes of servants of God. When we bring our attitudes in alignment with the Lord's will, we will be a humble people, humble like our Savior. But humility is hard for us to attain, hard for us to grow in. Arrogance happens in all kinds of different ways. In the mid-1700s, England was set on fire by a great awakening thanks to the preaching of two brothers, John and Charles Wesley, and their friend, George Whitfield. And these three guys were close, close friends. They had history together as young men. And the, the Wesley brothers were responsible for Whitfield's growth in the Lord, his maturity, and uh, his, some of his practices in preaching. Uh, but over time, John Wesley, the leader, and George Whitfield, they had a theological divide. You see, Whitfield eventually traveled to America and he had been doing some reading and some talking to people and he arrived at some conclusions that put him under a label that we would call Calvinism. But John Wesley was decidedly not Calvinist. John Wesley was an Arminian and a staunch Arminian at that. Tempers flared, relationship was broken. John Wesley wrote a book specifically to act against the Calvinism that Whitfield was preaching. And after that book was published, they invited Whitfield to preach at the Wesley's church. And he preached on the glories of election and predestination <laughs> to this Arminian church. It's a dagger, right? I mean, it's this back and forth, this fight between these spiritual giants. But through all that time and, and the popularity of their disagreement with each other, not one spoke irreverently of the other. One time, Whitfield was asked if he thought he would see John Wesley in heaven. Whitfield replied, I don't think so, because he will be so close to the eternal throne, and we at such a distance, we will hardly get sight of him. And when Whitfield died, at his request, John Wesley preached his funeral. 
God's people ought to be marked by a Christ-like humility. If you examine your heart and your life and you see that you're an arrogant person, you struggle with pride, how do you fix that? What do you do? Here's what you do. You set your eyes on Jesus, who according to Philippians chapter 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, becoming human, humbling himself all the way to death, even death on a cross. If you want to live your life in alignment with the attitude and the humility that God's will requires, you set your sights on Jesus and you walk in his way. So we need alignment in our desires, alignment in our holiness, alignment in our attitudes, our humility. Finally, God's people need alignment with God's purposes. Verses 19 and 20 it all comes to a climax. Look at verses 19 and 20 with me. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson in power. He went down to Ashkelon. That's, that's the capital city of the Philistine kingdom. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of their belongings, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. Now, before we mourn the 30 men from Ashkelon, let's remember this. These are not innocent people. They are guilty before God, one, for their sins against his holiness, Two, because of their oppression over his people for the previous 40 plus years. And the demise of the Philistines is God's primary agenda through Samson. God is going to use Samson to begin the deliverance of Israel from this enemy nation. So when these guys are struck down, although it is out of a sense of vengeance and anger from Samson, still... This is a foretaste of the grand deliverance to come for God's people. Now, this is the second time in the story we're told that the Spirit of the Lord came upon Samson. The first was during his interaction with the lion, and now it's during this fight with the Philistines. God empowers Samson to do these supernatural things in order to do what's necessary to deliver his people. So if I were to ask you, I have a little Samson quiz, and, and I were to ask you, where does Samson's strength come from? If you were to answer it comes from his hair, you get a big fat red X on that question. His hair is not some sort of, I don't know, just some sort of mystical, magical thing that gives him strength. His strength comes from the Lord. When his hair is cut in chapter 16, and he loses his strength, it's got a little to do with his hair and everything to do with the final breaking of his vow to the Lord. It's not hair that gives him strength. It's the Lord that gives him strength. And the Lord gives him strength to deliver his people in a small way in this instance. Samson was built for this purpose, to deliver God's people. He should never have been going to a wedding. Samson should have been going to war. He's got this one job to do, and that's it. My former town made the national news this past week. We moved here from the Wichita, Kansas area, Texas, Oklahoma, 
Kansas, that's where Kansas is. <laughs> Don't act like you knew that. <laughs> and in the city of Wichita is a, a school that we love and cheer for, Wichita State University. Don't ask me how a city can be a state university. It just is, Wichita State University. Uh, they had a water tower painted this week. And the men who were responsible for putting the words Wichita State University back on the water tower made a tiny mistake. Uh, they swapped the E in state with the Y in university, so it says Wichita State University. <laughs> that was on the Today Show this week. You've got one job. Let's spell the words. That's all you've got to do. Not a hard thing. Samson had one job, a job that he failed at, but God was successful in still. You and I, as followers of Jesus, we also have one job, one purpose. What is that? What is the reason that we gather? What is the reason we stick our noses in the Word of God? What is the reason that, that we connect with our community? What is the reason that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? The reason is this given by Jesus, we are to make disciples. This is our job. This is our job corporately. This is our job individually. Every follower of Jesus is a disciple maker. Everyone. No one gets exempt from this. And we accomplish that in many, many ways, through many different giftings, uh, through all kinds of manifestations. At the end of the day, the question for you to ask is, am I in any way drawing people closer to Jesus for their salvation or for their sanctification? Am I contributing to the work of making disciples? When we align ourselves with God's mission, we find God's heart in this. And so what are we to do if we realize I'm a church attender, but I'm, I'm not carrying out the mission God has given me to do? What do we do? Well, we turn our eyes to Jesus we hear his words in Matthew 28. We believe the work that he's given us to do. We believe that he hasn't made a mistake in filling us and calling us. We walk by faith in the word of Jesus to make disciples in the world around us. So as the mission of God moves forward, where does your life need to find alignment? You want your desires aligned with God's desires for you. You want your holiness aligned with God's expectations for you. You want your attitude aligned with Christ-like humility. And you want your mission aligned with God's mission. Alignment with God starts with a yes to Jesus. All of us have Samson hearts. We're not reading about other people in Judges 14. We're looking in a mirror here. All of us need the help that only God can give, and God helps us in this way. The sin that we've committed, the sin that we must pay for, is paid for instead by Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. The one we've sinned against is the one who comes to pay the price for our sin. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, goes to the cross and dies in my place, in your place, for our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead. It's not a myth. It's not make-believe. It's not fairy tale. It's historical fact. 
Christ really lived, really died, really rose again. And since that is true, everything he has said is true. Salvation goes through him and only through him. And that's good news for you today. That God would take that which is broken in us, that which is sinful, that which is death, and instead give us life when we trust in Jesus Christ for our salvation. That trust is a trust of faith. It's turning from our sin. It's turning entirely to Jesus. My whole life is yours, Jesus. I'm going to follow in your way. It's, it's a salvation by faith, not by any religious deed or religious work, only by trust in Jesus who came and died and lives again. And if you will turn from your sin and turn to Jesus today, your eternity will be changed forever. Your life will be brought into alignment with God's will for you. If you're already a believer, the failures that we see in Samson sound a familiar warning to us from the New Testament as well. 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15, tells the church, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, we see that in Samson? Yeah. The lust of the eyes, we see that in Samson? The pride of life, do we see that in Samson and in ourselves? Absolutely. Comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So when we read Judges 14, we realize what a train wreck all of this is and perhaps what a bit of a mess we are. We lift our eyes from this page and we set our eyes on Jesus Christ who shows us the way to walk in the will of the Father. Brothers and sisters, may God empower us to be a church aligned with our Savior. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word to us, a word that speaks to us at our point of need, and a word that shows us a way forward. I'm grateful that Judges 14 is not merely a hammer to, to afflict us with guilt and shame but rather even there is the glorious gospel you are working in grace for your people you are working deliverance in spite of their sin and if you if you did that in judges 14 how much more so have you done it now through jesus christ who came for us and died and lives evermore so lord i i ask this morning that you would draw close to you any of my friends in here that don't know you as their savior you know how long their faith journey has been, the questions they wrestle with, the doubts and fears that plague them. But God, I, I ask that you would give them eyes to see you for who you are, a God who is gracious and loving and merciful, a God of salvation. Let them put their trust in Jesus Christ this morning for their salvation. And I pray for my brothers and sisters in the faith that we would live our lives in alignment with your will, that we, as your church, would be potent proclaimers of the gospel for the sake of the lives and the communities around us whom you love so dearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.